We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. Today, we're actually reaching out and talking to one of those wonderful people that is back in lockdown in Victoria. So I'm very grateful to my expert guest and all around inspiring woman, Associate Professor Francine Marquez. As usual, our show is proudly supported by Edge Radio and recorded in Tasmania. Go to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the good things they're doing. And you're joined by me, Dr. Neve Chapman, and my expert guest, Associate Professor Francine Marquez. To begin today's episode, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording. I'm in the northwest of the state today, so that is the Palawa people, as I am on Lutruwita. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you are uh, listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present of all First Nations people. So, Francine, we go way back, and I can't believe it's only now that I'm getting to interview you for the show. But I've wanted to ask you forever, why are you passionate about researching cardiovascular disease? So I think that's a very good question. And uh, I was reflecting on it uh, this week as I was trying to tell my story to someone else. And I think it goes back to being a little girl and always seeing my father take his pills for high blood pressure. So high blood pressure is the main risk for heart disease and for a stroke. And my father was diagnosed with high blood pressure since his early days. So until uh, the day he died, he took uh, about three pills a day every single day for over 40 years. So that's a, a very long time to be taking pills every single day. So I wanted to understand why some people went on to develop uh, high blood pressure and how we could try to stop it. And I guess that's where the passion came from. Wow, that's really cool. And then, so did you start out on your research career in Australia or did you start out overseas? So I am originally from Brazil. That's why I have this beautiful accent. And uh, I came to Australia 15 years ago after I finished my master's degree to have a gap year. And uh, it has been the longest, <laughs> uh, most enjoyable gap year ever. <laughs> And uh, so I came with the intention of just spending a year going back to Brazil to do my PhD and I fell in love with Australia and decided to stay. So I did then my PhD uh, here in Australia at Sydney Uni and then uh, moved down to Victoria to do my postdoctoral training. Awesome. So I think that makes really like a lot of sense having a family link to really bring home that heart disease is the leading cause of death in the world, but also in Australia. Absolutely. Um, and it's a really like, fulfilling moment when you're having those research struggles you can think about you know why am I doing this <laughs> um, and it really Absolutely. brings it home <laughs> but you look at a very specific part of what could be causing high blood pressure and yes. that is the link between our gut and our heart health and I love that because you know the old age-old saying of like the way to a man's heart is through his stomach that could mm -hmm. be more true than yes. we originally thought so can you tell me why did you start looking at whether or not our gut health is linked to our heart health? Yeah. So this came through interest in a healthy diet. So since um, like growing up, 
my family is with uh, Italian background. So Mediterranean diet was what we had every single day. So I grew up eating what we would consider a healthy diet. And, um, and it was very hard sometimes coming across uh, diets that were quite different and uh, you could clearly see that they had an impact on health. So diet and health for me was something that was always quite closely associated. Uh, my background is as a genetic um, a geneticist and a, a molecular geneticist specifically. And uh, with that, I always did uh, studies and research that was looking into specific molecules that was I found really difficult to explain to people, <laughs> especially in shows like this, how there was this <laughs> tiny molecule that influenced another molecule that ended up causing a, a heart disease in an organ that people didn't even know where it was. <laughs> and, and suddenly when I start reading a lot about the microbiota, uh, it became quite evident that it had so much potential and it had a likelihood of having a link to uh, all sorts of diseases, including heart disease. And it was underappreciated. Uh, and I think it's also important to consider that um, we, we talk a lot about our diet, but we don't talk about what happens after we eat. And, uh, and talking about it allowed me to also engage a lot with more of uh, the public because everybody can relate to eating and going to the toilet. <laughs> so, <laughs> So that's where the interest started, and uh, particularly my research focus on dietary fiber. So uh, foods that are high in fiber, specifically uh, fibers that are considered uh, considered fermentable. So these are the types of food that feed the microbes in our gut the most. And these are the types of food that we focus on studying to understand what they actually do and how they can help us to prevent heart disease. Awesome. So I think, you know, when we say, you know, there's a link between a, our stomach and our heart, we're maybe actually talking about what the bit that happens after our food goes into our stomach. Yes. So what do you mean by the gut microbiota and how is that different from the gut microbiome? Because they seem to be thrown around very interchangeably. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for asking that. So, um, yes. Yeah, so in our gut, we have uh, trillions of microbes different types of microbes. So we have bacteria, we have viruses, we have other types of microbes as well. And together, this community of microbes is the gut microbiota. So they are really important because we can't digest many types of food um, and they help us with the digestion. They help us to produce certain types of vitamins. They have a really important role in our health and in the development of our immune system as well. Uh, and the difference between the microbiota and the microbiome is that the microbiota are the microbes themselves and the community of these microbes or the microbiome is uh, the DNA. So we're looking into think about the human uh, DNA or the human genome and we have the microbes genome, which is the microbiome. Okay, so that's like the genetic information of the actual microbial community is the biome, the biota, or like the community themselves. Yes. Okay, cool. Yes. So Something that I'm interested in is like, can you actually change the microbes that are in your gut? That's a very good question. <laughs> so you can, but with a certain degree of difficulty. So what we know is that we, the microbes who respond uh, to changes in our diet and the environmental uh, factors quite rapidly. But if you would go on a diet, let's say on uh, fasting or on uh, like a radical like shake diet for a week, 
and we would monitor your microbes now and at the end of this period, you would see that the microbes change. As soon as you go back into your old habits, the microbes are going to change back to that. So there is evidence in the literature showing that microbes are actually quite stable over time in the same individual. And one of our uh, most recent studies uh, that we did measurements across several time points in the same people, they seem to actually be much more closer related to uh, one specific person than to specific even uh, diets. Oh, okay. So it's more like the individual. Because um, we did an episode right when we first started talking about um, the microbiome and depression. And they were saying that things like, you know, if you're born by C-section or if you have a vaginal birth are actually influencing your microbiome because the yep. microbes you're exposed to in those early years are really formative in everything you were like consuming, whether it's through your nose or your mouth, um, is actually influencing the types of little bugs you're growing in your tummy and your gut. Which is pretty cool. Um, why do you think there's been such a sudden interest in the role of the gut microbiome or biota? Um, one of the major factors that has uh, been driving this is the changing technology. So what we can do these days is to sequence the microbe genes, and that will tell us about what types of microbes are in our gut. Well, in the past, we relied on techniques that we actually had to grow them and because a lot of them don't like oxygen, they would die as soon as they were out of the gut. So it was really difficult. So by uh, now sequencing them, it allows us to measure any types of microbes. So the technology has allowed that. Awesome. That's really good to know. So listeners, stick with us for part two, where I'm going to be talking more to Francine about the ways in which we can study the gut microbiome and biota to understand how it influences our health. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my friend, colleague, and respected national scientist and international scientist, Associate Professor Francine Marquez from Monash University. And we're talking about the link between your gut health and your heart health. I'd like to now talk more about your research and what you've been doing. So what have you found in relation to our gut microbiome or biota? sorry, and how that's linked to our heart health or our blood pressure. What way are those two things interacting? Because it doesn't necessarily seem obvious at first. So a um, major um, risk factor for cardiovascular disease or heart disease is our diet. And a lot of the research around high blood pressure, which is the main uh, disease that I study, focus on salt. And what I have been studying is another, um, I guess, component of our diet that is really important, that is fiber. So what we know is that um, when we have higher intake of fiber, there is a decrease in the risk of heart disease and a decrease in blood pressure. But until recently, we didn't understand how that happened or why that happened. So what I discovered uh, in uh, animal models, and now we're doing a, a a clinical trial to translate these findings is that when uh, we gave our animals a diet that was high in fiber, the diet then got digested by the gut microbiota. And through that digestion, the microbes produced many substances that we have been able to show that these substances individually or combined were then able to lower blood pressure and improve heart function. So 
what we are doing at the moment is a trial where we are modifying fiber to enrich them for these substances produced by the microbes uh, and give them directly to people to see whether we can just uh, uh, skip the step where people need to eat what they're supposed to eat because we know we're actually really bad at doing that and giving them the substances that potentially will help them to lower the blood pressure and improve their heart health. That's cool. So we talked earlier that the types of microbes or the bacteria that you have in your gut differs a lot person to person. So in your animal models, were you able to see like if they had the same microbes and therefore if they had the same microbes or different microbes, did they respond the same way to the fiber and release the same substances? Yes. That's a good question. So the way that we do studies in our uh, animal models is that we randomize um, animals that came from the same mother, specifically because you mentioned before the microbiota is passed uh, or at least in, uh, acquired a lot through birth. So to make sure that all the animals have a similar microbiota, they start we basically randomize animals that were in the same that were uh, sisters and brothers we randomize them into our different diets and our different uh, studies. So something that's really unique about your work, Francine, is that you're taking it from the lab to then doing things in people, because usually it takes a really long time for that to happen in research. And lots of things can be different in that instance. So tell me a little bit about how you're, like in more detail, about how you're then giving people these um, substrates rather than giving them fiber. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And I think we're incredibly fortunate to see our research go from publication in an animal model to funding and starting a clinical trial in two years. So that's incredibly rare. The reason that we were able to do that so rapidly is because the fiber that, or the supplement that we are using was developed by CSIRO here in Australia, uh, was already tested in people. So we knew it was safe. We knew it was available and uh, and we had all the, the, the skills and the expertise to be able to do it. So, uh, and also being a diet intervention that's uh, not as uh, difficult to get uh, through all the lines of approval compared to a new medication where you would have to do many other types of tests first. The initial idea was just to give uh, the participants the, this new type of uh, fiber that is enriched by the substances of the microbes in a powder form or the placebo. But after we did some tests, we decided that that was not um, the best way to make sure that people didn't know which one they were consuming because of taste and flavor and how it was going to dissolve and so on. So what we did was to engage with a research chef and Ooh, she developed yeah, she developed, um, I think we have 12 different recipes. Um, so uh, people need to have one portion in the morning, one portion in the evening. And people are going in what we call a crossover trial. So they'll go in one of the arms. We randomize them so we don't know who is going to fall into the placebo first or who is going to fall into the intervention first. Then they had a period that they don't have any interventions. And then they go into the other arm where they receive the other. Uh, the other, either the placebo or the intervention. So, and do you have to adjust for if they eat other things at the same time, or is that something that you're waiting to see? And do they like record what else they eat? Yeah, so they record everything uh, that they eat, and they record how much of the food that we give them they eat as well. Ideally, everything, but we understand that that might not be possible um, every single day, and. 
they do uh, they do record uh, what they eat before the trial and then at the end of the trial as well. So we can take into account that. But we also give recommendations of what types of food to avoid during the trial that might have a lot of fiber that would be a confounding factor. Okay. So you said that they take part for six weeks. So it's like two of weeks of that is like intervention or control period, two week wash washout period. Uh, no, three weeks of each arm and three weeks in the middle that they don't have anything. Okay. So nine weeks is quite a long time for people to be disrupted from like their eating pattern. Yeah, okay, so yeah. during the middle period, can they eat whatever they want? Like yeah, they absolutely. Period? Yeah. And even, even during the trial, they can eat most things. It's just that they also need to make sure that they eat the foods that we give them. So they have one item for uh, breakfast, one item for dinner. And for breakfast, it's usually a muffin. We have savory and sweet muffins. So they have we have like a lemon and a poppy seed. Delicious. We have yeah breakfast muffins that have like spinach and uh, like lots of herbs, um, basil, uh, capsicum, and so on, cheese. <laughs> Yummy. Yeah, and for the evening we have frittata burgers, uh, tuna and veggie burgers, and arancini balls. Okay, and do they get to like pick? Be like, I'm gonna eat this forever. Yeah, just, basically, oh, wow, that's cool. yeah. It's a very fun research project. So when they start, like, what are you most interested in looking at between your control and intervention period? So we do blood pressure. Um, that's the main uh, risk factor that we're trying to decrease. So these are all people that have high blood pressure that are untreated. Um, that's an important factor because we know that some medications to treat blood pressure could lower uh, or change the types of microbes. So we want to make sure that that's not a confounding factor. And uh, we do that via 24 hour blood pressure monitoring. So people uh, go home with a monitor that measures blood pressure every 15 minutes during the day and every 30 minutes during the night. And that makes sure that the blood pressure is measured uh, properly while they're still doing their normal activities. So while they're taking care of their kids, they're they are working, they are sitting down to have a coffee, whatever they normally do. And that's the gold standard way of measuring blood pressure. We also do collect, of course, still samples. Um, we wouldn't allow them to flush down pressure samples. Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. They only do that four times during the study. And, um, and we also do then um, blood samples. But the BMI, we uh, specifically ask them try not to lose weight because we know the BMI is also associated with blood pressure and we don't want that to be a confounding factor. Mm -hmm. So it must be kind of hard to recruit people that are diagnosed with high blood pressure but you're intervening so do you just get people who are newly told they have high blood pressure yeah ideally sense. yes and also a lot of the people that they come to us is because they don't want to go on antihypertensive pills mm -hmm. so they come to our study hoping that uh, by changing the diet with our intervention and then following up we give them a lot of advice so a study coordinator is a dietitian so she'll uh, tell them also after the trial what they can do to increase the intake of fiber and um, by doing that, uh, that's why that's one of the main attractions that they come is because they really want to learn more about their own health and they want the, they don't want to be taking pills. So a tricky question for you that I'm sure you've thought about, but maybe not. Do you think that people who are inclined that way, who are more interested in maybe trying a dietary or a lifestyle intervention before going straight to pills are like representative or might have different health behaviors from like the average person that gets told they have high blood pressure? Or do you think they might be slightly healthier because they're more inclined to be motivated to change their behavior? That's a very good question. 
and um, and I'm not sure if I have the answer. We have all like we have a lot of uh, measurements and uh, we do like a lot of uh, questionnaires before they start the diet. So we have a lot of information, including like uh, socioeconomics um, background and things like that that might influence their uh, availability of um, buying fresh food, mm. buying food that is healthy and is higher in fiber. It is a tricky uh, thing is, generally yeah. in research because people who are motivated to take part in research aren't necessarily the people that we're trying to like reach with our research findings. True, so yeah. yeah, it's a bit of a curveball one. Stick with us for part three as we'll be talking more about the future directions of potentially using fiber to improve your gut health. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about the link between gut health and high blood pressure. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman, and I'm joined with Associate Professor Francine Marquez from Monash University. Francine, this has been awesome. I've learned a lot about the gut and the little microbes that are living there. And I've also learned that's linked to our high blood pressure because of things that they like to eat fiber, and then they release good things for our bodies that actually lower blood pressure in animals, and that you're now testing that in humans, which is really cool. It's really rare to hear that so hopefully people are getting how excited I am about that because that is rare and it's what is really needed in research is to test how quickly we can take something from a laboratory experiment and put it into real world but um I wonder where do you see things like improving the gut microbiome where do you see that going in the future them like, like giving people more fiber or are there other ways to um improve our gut microbiota and the microbes that live there yeah, oh, look, this is a research area that there is so much uh, uh, potential and so much potential to reach people in our community really fast. So the number one is like, if you want to improve your gut health, you don't need to be going on um, specific supplements or doing or buying probiotics and things like that. What you need is to focus on having a diet that is uh, of unprocessed food and that is a lot of uh, variability in this diet. So there was a study from the US of one of the biggest groups that uh, do uh, studies in the microbiota uh, field that showed that people that they had the highest uh, diversity of microbes, so they has different types of microbes in the gut, which is usually a mark of health. Uh, these people were eating more than 20 different types of food that are unprocessed healthy foods. So think about fruit, vegetables, grains, nuts, olive oil, all this uh, good food that it's, there's nothing fancy about it. They're superfoods that <laughs> 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 uh, they're not fancy. They're just like everyday superfoods. That's awesome. That's a really good take home message. So, you know, if I'm eating really heavily processed foods three times a day, having a probiotic yogurt once a day is not going to really save me. No, no. And look, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of probiotics in general. The main reason for that is because probiotics will contain millions of a few different types of microbes only. So you might benefit from those microbes if you're missing them in the first place. But if you're not, uh, they're probably not going to add uh, to the mix. And if you're not feeding the microbes what they need to be able to thrive and to produce those amazing substances that uh, can be used and to lower blood pressure and have many other roles, you're not going to, like, they're not going to stay around and they're not going to do anything for you. 
So I think we really need to focus on improving our diet, improving the types of microbes that are already there and giving them what they actually need to survive and thrive. I really love that message, Francine. And I think it's something that like when I was an undergrad, the reason I started to pursue science was because I was fit and healthy at the time and I wanted to get more people enthusiastic about it. And now I'm much less fit and much less healthy. Um, but something that I became really passionate about during that time was access to healthcare and access to food in particular. Um, I don't do that as my research area, but I'm really fascinated by food deserts, which are particularly important in Australia where we've got really regional and remote communities. Do you think that potentially... I think the gut microbiome or biota might be explaining some well-known patterns that we see, such as the fact that the Mediterranean diet is like the healthiest ones. It's probably like what you were saying just a minute ago. It's just really diverse because they eat what's seasonal, what's around, they have a little glass of wine, they're not too serious about it. (laughs) But do you think that maybe tackling the gut microbiota could actually level the playing field where we could do something like what you're doing in your research and send out fiber supplements to people who may don't maybe don't have access to fresh food. So look, I absolutely think that there is the potential to uh, help with this, uh, like, let's say modified types of food that contain already high levels of uh, microbial substances to try to improve the health of those in uh, more disadvantaged and isolated communities. Uh, we are looking also into effects of not just in high blood pressure, but then some diseases downstream from that. So we know that people with high blood pressure, they go on to develop uh, heart attacks, uh, strokes and so on. And whether the same substances could help uh, those people that had an, uh, uh, like an acute like event. Uh, whether they don't have necessarily access to a hospital nearby, but that could be something that they could have at home because there is no uh, no risk in having that because it's basically fiber. Mm-hmm. So we are looking into whether that could be an alternative. Um, but there are other ways as well. So there are some groups in the US that are developing ways to block specific microbes uh, and the enzymes that they produce without eliminating them from the gut. So just blocking the production of enzymes. So treating microbes instead of treating the patient. Oh, that could also cool. be, yeah, that could also be uh, accessible to other people uh, elsewhere in Australia. Do you think it's just explaining what we already know? Like it's just the microbes actually are what makes salt, salt bad for us and potassium good for us? I think it is. Uh, part of it is explaining the things that we already knew, but it's also opening up to new therapeutic opportunities as a result of the mechanisms that we discover that are associated with how these foods influence the gut and uh, the gut and the microbiota and how that then influences back in our systemic uh, like a whole body health that's all we've got time for today thank you so much francine you've been an awesome guest for now thanks for listening to that's what i call science we hope you enjoyed the show my name is dr neve chapman and my expert guest was associate professor francine marques from monash university this program was made possible with support from the community broadcasting foundation find out more at cbf.org.au You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. 
GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.